The motivation for looking at meteorite impact craters is if you stand up and look at the moon on a clear night, even without binoculars, you can see that the moon is pockmarked by impact craters. NASA is, with the other world space agencies, are really formulating how we're going to train astronauts in the lead up to the Artemis missions and the return to the moon. That's Dr. Gordon Oz Ozinski. Canada's own Dr. Oz is a geologist, professor of Earth Sciences, research chair in Earth and Space Exploration at the University of Western Ontario, and an RCGS fellow. He's also our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. This episode has a little bit of everything in it. Giant remote Canadian meteor craters, space rocks, astronauts, and moon bases. But before we get to our own Dr. Oz, a reminder that by donating to the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, you're helping to support educational programming, expedition funding, research grants, and many other society-funded geographical initiatives, helping the RCGS to carry out its mandate of making Canada better known to Canadians and the world. So to make your tax-deductible pledge, please visit rcgs.org forward slash donate. And thank you. And now, on to Dr. Oz. Dr. Gordon Oz Nazinski, welcome to the Explore podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And the expedition you went on sort of ticks a bunch of boxes of what we love on this podcast. It's uh, a remote and very interesting location in Canada. Uh, you've got a couple of astronauts with you on this expedition. We love astronauts on the podcast. And I have to add, too, that it, you're helping us correct a glaring omission on the pod. The Royal Canadian Geographical Society was founded by Charles Campbell, who was one of Canada's leading uh, geologists in the day. And we've never had a geologist on the podcast. So thank you for correcting that. As oh, well. wow. Well, I'm glad I can uh, set the trend and hopefully there'll be many more. Hopefully there will be many more. So tell us about this expedition with these two astronauts, where, where you went, uh, first of all, and what was the interest in that place? Yeah, so last September, I headed up to what is known in English uh, as the Mastastan Lake impact structure, or in uh, the local kind of Innu dialect is Kamastastan. And so this is a, a roughly circular lake, um, a couple of hundred kilometers to the north of Happy Valley Goose Bay, so kind of in, in kind of north central Labrador. And our reason for going there is that this is a meteorite impact crater and, you know, a very special one. So mm -hmm. that was the, the major motivation to head up there in September. Yeah. And so the two astronauts that are with you, who are they and, and why, why are they joining you on this trip? Yeah, so first and foremost, uh, this was an expedition that I was heading up with some students, uh, you know, to conduct research. And mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I was also, you know, lucky enough and but offered up to NASA and the Canadian Space Agency to take along a couple of astronauts. So Joshua Kutrick, um, who was one of the last two selected Canadian astronauts, and then Matthew Dominic. Um, was in the same class as Josh, actually, the Turtles, as they're known, and they uh, both became astronauts about two or three years ago now. So tell us about the lake and what, what makes it special. Why were you guys there? Yeah, so obviously, you know, the motivation for looking at meteorite impact craters is, you know, if you stand up and look at the moon on a clear night, even without binoculars, um, you can see that the moon is pockmarked by impact craters. 
And so unlike on Earth, where, you know, there's lots of other geological processes that uh, come to bear, um, the surface of the moon is really shaped by two main geological processes, volcanism, but that ended about three billion years ago, and then impact cratering. So essentially, the impact of asteroids or comets with the, comets with the surface of the moon. And, you know, that's uh, that means essentially that, you know, everywhere we go on the moon, you'll be running into meteorite impact craters, all the samples that we bring back have been affected by at least one meteorite impact event. And so really anything we're going to do on the moon and anything you want to do to understand the moon, you really need a good understanding of what we call the, the impact process. And uh, it turns out here in Canada, we have, um, you know, a large number of, of impact craters, uh, 31 to be exact. It's actually what brought me to Canada over 20 years ago to do my PhD. Yeah. I was working on another crater in the far north. Uh, but this crater in Labrador is unique for many reasons. It's uh, it's relatively well-preserved. Uh, it formed about 35 million years ago, which to the non-geologist might you know seem like forever and a long, long time ago. But in terms of uh, geology, and, you know, the, when the age of the Earth is four and a half billion years old, 35 million years is actually fairly recent in geological terms. So that's not a wiping out the dinosaurs one. That's a no, more no. Um, yeah. So the size of it is about 28 kilometers across. So mm -hmm. it's about a tenth the size of the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, um, which means that, you know, if you were unlucky enough to be there, you know, 35 million years ago, it would have had some pretty significant consequences across Canada, but it wasn't global in its environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. what, what would be the impact of that been just out of we you know it's a great question and um so a quick sidestep you know in studying impacts it's a good and a bad thing that we haven't witnessed a large one in our human lifetimes you know or in human mm -hmm. history so you know unlike volcanism where you know if you're looking at ancient volcanism on earth you can go and study the process today Right, you know, mm -hmm. somewhere on Earth at any one time there's a volcano erupting. So you get to witness the process happening. Whereas with impacts, again, you know, thankfully we haven't witnessed the process happening. So it means we're reliant on, you know, experiments, uh, doing geology, you know, and ancient rocks, uh, numerical modeling, and uh, perhaps a kind of best understanding of the environmental impacts in particular comes from the nuclear tests of the 1960s and 70s where, you know, ah, interesting. I don't think many of us would agree that it was a good thing, but, you know, they um, calibrated, they put a lot of instrumentation out in some of those big tests down in Nevada in particular. And so, you know, they measured how hot the surface got, where the fireball went and that kind of thing. And so, you know, Labrador, um, this crater would have formed, you know, we would have had, you know, ejector going out and, you know, really erasing the surface for, you know, a few hundred kilometers. Wow. Um, but by the time you get, you know, down to where I am in Southern Ontario now, you know, you would have had, you know, particulates in the atmosphere and maybe the odd thing landing. Uh, it would have caused, you know, um, short-term climate change for sure. You know, we know even after a large volcanic eruption that, you know, you can get slightly cooler conditions and things across the world mm -hmm. because, you know, once stuff's lofted, into the high atmosphere it can circulate but you know to our knowledge no mass extinction uh nothing like that 
Huh. Fascinating. So the interest for you then is the crater itself to some degree, and is it also the rocks that you're finding there? Yes. So the crater is actually quite unique. So because it's relatively well-preserved, it's also relatively well-exposed up in the tundra of northern Labrador. So, you know, there's some craters in Ontario that are buried under forests and swamp and things where you just, you know, you can't really see anything. So there's, there's those two aspects, which means there's a lot of the rocks produced by the impact that you can go and walk around, study, investigate and sample. And some spectacular, you know, cliffs, tens of meters high of rocks that were molten by the impact. So really quite unique. But what uh-huh. really gives this crater you know, a leg up on almost any other crater on Earth is that it also formed um, into a large part in a rock we call anorthosite. And so anorthosite, think of a granite that, you know, you might have on your kitchen counter or you might have encountered wandering around Mm -hmm. the Canadian Shield or, you know, various parts of Canada. If you take Mm -hmm. away the quartz and the pink mineral in there, the potassium feldspar, you're left with a rock that is dominated by plagioclase feldspar. And so it's kind of 90% this one mineral. And it turns out that that is what the lunar highlands are made out of. So when you look at the moon, all of the white stuff that is, you know, that dominates the surface of the moon is a rock, is the same rock, anorthosite. And so here, you know, we have a relatively young crater in Labrador, relatively well preserved, and it formed in essentially the same rock type. And there's really only one or two other craters in the world where we have a substantial portion of anorthosite. But again, they're not as well exposed and preserved. And so, you know, we can go up there and see what we call ejector deposits, that material that is thrown out, broken up, and redeposited by the impact event, and it's made up of anorthosite. And so, you know, this is what we think the, the astronauts will encounter when they go back to the moon. This is what we want them to be looking for uh, when we go back to the moon. And so, this is an ideal, you know, ideal training ground. And you know, there's some really cutting edge science to still be done at this crater too. So. You've got these two astronauts with you, Joshua Kutrick and Matthew Dominic. What are you? So are you training them to be geologists in effect when you're up in this crater? What, what's going on? Yeah, I think you know, pretty, pretty simply, that's uh, what we're trying to do. I would say that this trip too was a bit of a reconnaissance. Um, you know, so NASA is uh, with the other world space agencies are really formulating how we're going to train astronauts in the lead up to the Artemis missions and the return to the moon. You know, we did it during Apollo. Um, It's maybe a little known fact that in the lead up to all of the Apollo missions, those astronauts were getting a huge amount of geology training, uh, particularly during the last three, which were these so-called J-class missions where science was really, you know, they'd been to the moon three times. Mm -hmm. The last three were really science driven. And so, you know, they were actually spending on average uh, about a week, a month in the lead up to those missions doing geology training. And so, you know, part of it is just getting some basic geology skills because, um, you know, this was just a random coincidence um, that basically Joshua and Matt are fighter pilots, you know, so they they trained as pilots, their military upbringing. So, you know, they really haven't had uh, much geology training uh, in the past, just like the Apollo astronauts. So, you know, part of it is, you know, just learning the lingo. We unfortunately have a lot of that in geology, you know, certain rock types, names we give to things, 
But I'd say even more importantly is just the process of how you go about exploring an area, documenting, you know, outcrops, documenting where you collect samples, um, because, you know, they are our, you know, our remote geologists on the moon. Most, you know, just about all the science will be done on the samples that they return to Earth. And so, you know, having them just understand the process of how about you do geology is absolutely critical so that, you know, when they bring the samples back, we know where they came from, what the context was, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk about Artemis a bit more, but can you just tell us a bit about the Mistastin Lake itself? Like how, like how did you get there? How remote is this? Like, Yeah, so, you know, compared to some of the other craters I've worked at in, in the far north up in Nunavut, it's, uh, it's relatively easy to get there. And I say relatively, you know, yeah. you're a commercial flight into Happy Valley Goose Bay, um, where, you know, there are grocery stores and a hardware store that, you know, I don't get in the far north in the tiny little communities. Um, and, uh, and then we basically charter a Twin Otter aircraft and, you know, take about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minute flight, um, just not quite due north. Uh, it's actually quite close to the Quebec border is this lake up in uh, mm -hmm. as Labrador kind of narrows. Um, so it's sort of up at that parallel with Hudson's Bay, isn't it? Just to give yeah, it a little yeah, idea. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's Mid fifties sort of... uh, degree latitude. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you can obviously take a float plane anywhere in the north and land it because it's, mm -hmm. it's quite a big lake. Um, but we're actually quite lucky in that um, there's a good airstrip on some, you know, nice flat uh, old gravel terraces. And um, uh, it's actually quite remarkable, even since the last time that I was up there, uh, which was over a decade, um, the Innu actually have, you know, a hunting camp. Uh, on the shore of the lake, because uh, it used to be anyway a good caribou hunting region, uh, and there's great fishing in the lake. So there's actually quite a good, you know, again by northern standards, kind of gravel airstrip with just a few bushes. And so mm -hmm. we, you know, land the Twin Otter, uh, take a couple of flights to get all of our gear in, and then we, you know, set up a remote base camp. And then from there, it's, uh, you know, exploring the area by land on foot. And then mm -hmm. uh, the lake, you know, gets in the way sometimes, but it also means that we can use a Zodiac boat to get around it, you know, fairly quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, the lake itself is uh, about 16 kilometers across with an island in the middle, quite a prominent wow. island, which is actually part of the crater formation that we want to explore. Is that in the north of Side Island then, is it? or? It, it is, yeah. Yeah, part of the island is uh, is a northosite, and we call this the central yeah. uplift. So these are rocks that are actually brought from, you know, about two kilometers down to the surface in less than five seconds, you know, such impact. as the energy of the impact. And so that was one of the sites we wanted to visit. And then lots of really neat uh, locations around the shore of the lake as well. Amazing. And uh, in terms of just the terrain, is it black spruce forest or what are we looking at? Uh, you, you're right kind of in the, the transition to true tundra. So mm -hmm. in some areas, when you get up onto the plateau around the crater rim, it's pretty barren and windswept and you've just got mm -hmm. you know, some low kind of vegetation. But in a lot of the valleys where it's a bit more sheltered, you have you know the, the black spruce and things too. So it's, it's a really neat... A mix of, uh, of vegetation up there too. Yeah. And how did your astronauts do as geologists? 
I mean, they really did excellent. Um, you know, they, they unsurprisingly, you know, because yeah. they were selected out of thousands of people to become astronauts, they're incredibly fast learners. They pick things up so quickly. They ask great questions. And uh, yeah, you know, both of, by the end of the trip, and this was a relatively short trip of about, we had actually kind of 10 days on the ground at yeah. the crater. Um, you know, they were not quite going out on their own. Um, but, you know, we would work in somewhat independently, you know, over a few hundred meters and they were making some great observations. They found mm. a couple of things that, you know, we told them, watch out for this. And, you know, they came running with smiles on their face saying, is this what you were looking for? So, you know, it was really fun. And, um, you know, yeah, just really good to see them learn and uh, apply things and over the course of a few days. Yeah. No black flies and mosquitoes on the moon, though. No, the, you know, they got other challenges, but uh, no bugs. So, yeah, no bugs, yeah. Positive. How are the bugs up there, though? Uh, they weren't too bad. You know, I usually, I timed it in September, you know, very late August into September so that they, you know, had died down a bit. Uh, it was quite warm and calm when we landed. You know, the first couple of days, there were a good number of bugs that were driving mm. people crazy, but then... Middle of the, the trip, it snowed, actually. So, you know, we had a couple of nights below zero. So yeah, that made that for, you know, a bit yeah. a different kind of challenge to do geology and field work. But it did get rid of the bugs, at least. Yeah, for sure. And so I'd like to talk a bit more about Artemis. It's this NASA mission to go back to the moon. First time, obviously, since the Apollo missions. Um, a lot's changed, I guess, in that time. I'm sure in geology as well as in space travel. I mean, what, what's going to be different about how they go about or what they're even looking for? on these next missions yeah so you know in terms of the the infrastructure and getting there um of course you know they've had to completely you know come up with a new modern rocket uh capsule it, everything so you know everything in terms of the infrastructure the engineering has essentially been you know not quite designed from scratch you know lessons mm -hmm. learned from apollo and shuttle um, but, you know, it's interesting, right, that we're going back for, for this and I think, you know, into the future um, with more of the Apollo era, you know, standing rockets. So not like, a, you know, the shuttle, you know, a sort of plane like spacecraft. Um, but as, you know, as SpaceX have shown, we've come a long way in terms of reusability of, uh, you know, the, the, the rockets and things, too. So, you know, a lot of... Um, Again, almost starting from scratch in terms of the infrastructure. Um, so, you know, that's coming along. There are delays like with anything. And, you know, of course, COVID mm. didn't help too. Um, but, you know, we're seeing demonstrations of all the various bits and pieces. And uh, hopefully, you know, later this year, uh, we'll see, you know, Artemis 1, which is going to be an uncrewed test of so SLS is the space launch system, the rocket mm -hmm. and Orion is, you know, the capsule where the people sit. And so hopefully by the end of this year, we'll see, because it's been delayed um, from last year, um, the launch of this to test out, you know, everything all together. And then uh, there'll be an Apollo 8 like flyby, um, Artemis 2, um, which is exciting for Canada because, you know, they haven't announced the names yet, but that. Um, spacecraft will fly to the moon around it a few times and then uh, come back to the earth and so that will have four astronauts on board and then yes they've announced that one of those four will be a Canadian astronaut which will just be absolutely amazing and you know for the first time since Apollo will have you know 
a person, you know, seeing moon rise, earth rise, you know, flying around the limb of the moon and uh, peering back at earth. And so that's going to be, you know, just, just simply amazing. And then hopefully, you know, after not too long after that, a landing. Uh, so to get to the science, you know, quite a bit has changed. And so, you know, um, one of the major, I'd say, some people would say the most, but one of the biggest scientific discoveries made since Apollo in terms of the moon is that it's not completely dry, which is what we suspected 50 years ago. So we know that there are volatiles on the moon, uh, water ice in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so a couple of different types. <clears throat> we know that the moon is not quite as dry internally because uh, actually some of the samples retrieved from the moon brought back by the Apollo astronauts, these little glassy beads uh, were erupted from volcanoes and they contain minute amounts of uh, H2O. Um, <laughs> what we're going for initially though, and why we're, they're targeting the South Polar region, is because we've discovered that there are craters there, impact craters near the pole, that are essentially permanently in shadow, you know, and so we're talking billions of years where the sun has never shone. And so that means over the billions of years, very tiny, tiny concentrations of volatiles have ever so slowly built up. And so, yeah, you know, we've seen from orbiters what we think is water ice in some of these regions. And so the, the, the science is being driven by volatiles initially uh, to go to the South Polar regions, you know, with the first uh, Artemis mission and maybe the, the, the couple after that. Why is finding water on the moon important? You know, so as a scientist, it's incredibly important to, uh, you know, interesting, how did it get there? Why is it there? How does it survive so long? You know, there's lots of scientific questions. Um, but, you know, absolutely the motivation is because if we can find that water, we can use it uh, and extract it. Um, and there's this kind of buzzword, ISRU, that uh, is floating around the community right now. And that stands mm -hmm. for in situ resource utilization. What it basically means is that we could live off the land, you know. Mm. Um, space travel is expensive because, you know, every kilo that you launch from Earth comes at a huge cost. So if you can reduce, and the biggest cost is just to get to low Earth orbit. You know, if you can, so if you can reduce the mass that you have to launch off the surface of the Earth, uh, then, you know, it will reduce the cost of space travel and it will just open up so many doors. And so the goal is that we can find water, <coughs> excuse me, and then use it in the short term, you know, for people to drink, uh, to extract the oxygen, to breathe. And then also, you know, in the, the medium term, uh, rocket fuel so that, you know, you could actually refuel the rocket to get back to Earth or use it, you know, as essentially, you know, a, a, a moon gas station where, you know, you can fill up and then go onto Mars or beyond as well. And so it's really quite exciting to think that, you know, we might be able to find and use the resources in a sustainable, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, fashion uh, on the surface of the moon someday. Would that include a moon base then at some point? Would that, was that part of that thinking? So it is definitely being talked about, you know, I hope it actually happens this time. Um, you know, the model would be something like Antarctica, right, where we, we, we set up an outpost and that there are people there. You know, I think it will morph like Antarctica has where, you know, initially we didn't, well, we went there for science, you know, a century ago, but there was a lot of other reasons too, you know, geopolitical and, you know, um, 
you know, just to explore the region. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, hopefully we will see and all, all the world's space agencies are talking about it. So I think it's just a question of when, you know, mm -hmm. not in the next decade. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I think slowly but surely we'll start to set up some infrastructure and uh, see people there for longer missions. And then, you know, maybe eventually it'll be like the space station where 24-7, 365 days a year, there's, you know, a permanent uh, human presence on the moon. It's fascinating. We had a Canadian astronaut Roberta Bonder on the podcast, and she said she thought that was the next important thing that happened was actually a moon base gets built. And, and part of the reasons too are geopolitical. She thought, like, how do wh who owns space or who owns the moon? And we we need to figure these things out. And this is how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's yeah, <laughs> yeah, lots of one of the you know I find fascinating aspects is we're having to you know re redo some of the existing laws for outer space and come up with new ones especially when you get to you know extracting something right you know who who owns it who can do what with it what can you build where etc uh, etc et is there anything that surprised you about working with the astronauts on this trip was there any any moments that sort of stood out so i, I did actually have the opportunity to work with um josh and matt um during their their basic training or not so basic training so, you know, all of the astronauts go through a pretty grueling two-year uh, process um, that when they have to, you know, pass a whole series of tests and things uh, to qualify as astronauts. And so that's after they've been initially selected. And so, you know, um, they had some basic geology training during those two years. I was down in the classroom with them and then in northern Arizona with them in the field for a few days as well. And so, you know, I got to know them a little bit got to see them in action and uh, yeah so you know I, I don't think I was really surprised too much you know they in addition to the science right you know they they chipped in with everything you know you're running a camp in a remote location the conditions are pretty harsh at times you know we had uh, after it got cooler some wet weather we were crossing rivers you know with snow in the air and uh, but they just you know jumped right in as I you know as I think most of us would do and, and did do in those situations and uh, you know ferried other people across the river and you know we had to fix the zodiac one time and we're getting you know crashed over by freezing cold waves and things and they they stood their ground contributed kept smiling and uh i think you know that's why they were selected to be astronauts yeah. in the first place too yeah. that's the kind of people we need right to go yeah. out into space yeah uh, one of the last astronauts on the moon was Harrison Schmidt, who was a geologist. Are, are we due for another geologist up there? And are you are you in the running, perhaps? <laughs> well, I don't think I'm in the running. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe getting a bit long in the tooth, and uh, I'm I'm actually more than happy to, you know, be participating in the training of the astronauts who will go there. Um, yeah, you know, I've met Jack Schmidt a few times, and uh, you know, he's I was just on a. At a conference last week, a virtual one, and he was there, still talking about and as excited about you know lunar geology as he was fifty years ago, which is quite remarkable. Um, I think he is a testament to demonstrating why having someone with a lot of geology experience does make sense um, mm -hmm. as well. And so, you know, I think it will be a mix. Um, I'm mm -hmm. actually quite excited right now up on the International Space Station. Uh, one of Matt and Josh's uh, teammates who they graduated with is Jessica Watkins. And so, um, you know, she's already broken a few records. Um, 
uh, in doing what she's doing. Um, but she mm -hmm. was actually um, a Mars scientist. And so she, you know, got her PhD, was uh, working on one of the Mars missions when she got selected to become an astronaut. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are a few other geoscientists uh, in the astronaut corps, um, but she's one example of, uh, you know, the, the new uh, recently graduated astronauts that does have that geology training. And so... Yeah, I hope it will be, uh, you know, a mix of uh, trained geologists, engineers, doctors, right? We need all expertises in everyone. And, uh, yeah, of course, absolutely always need the pilots. And so yeah, there's always a place for, for them too. Someone's got to get you there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, listen, thank you so much for your time. This is a, a fascinating discussion. I, I have a question I ask all my guests, and you've certainly traveled this country to very remote places, but what 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 is your favorite place in Canada, a place that you maybe that really sticks in your mind or that you love to go to on a regular basis or maybe just, you know, yeah, a happy place? Or... Oh, geez, that's an incredibly hard question that you maybe should have forewarned me on. <laughs> um, you know, there's some places closer to home um, where, you know, I enjoy going with my family, you know, canoe tripping and things with my kids and wife. Um, so give me one be, of those. You can't beat, you know, play Kalani and Algonquin Park uh, in Ontario. Um, in terms of, you know, I think probably the favorite, my favorite place is Devon Island in the Canadian high Arctic. Um, I'm lucky enough to be going back there again after a bit of a hiatus this summer. Um, it's an out of this kind of world environment. It's a polar desert, remote. It's the largest uninhabited island on earth. And, you know, um, just not a speck of vegetation. So barren, but beautiful a true wilderness and uh, again it's uh, definitely one of the places that I enjoy going back to time and again for, for research predominantly but it's just you know, an amazing place to be period. Fantastic well Oz thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. You're very welcome David and it's, uh, yeah we're happy to come on again in the future. Yeah we look forward to updates on all of this. And thank you for listening. Thanks as well to everyone who has given this podcast a five-star rating and written flattering reviews. The more positive feedback we give the algorithm, the wider the audience we can reach with this interviews. It's really appreciated on our part. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And speaking of a wider audience, while it's very gratifying certainly to be on podcast charts here in Canada, I want to give a shout out to our listeners in Portugal, Belgium, Ireland, and South Korea who have us charting over there. We see you and we thank you. Merci. Miigwech. And so until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth and it's just a, a fantastic experience and I just can't wait to get back and start telling you. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Every little over every inch of the country that could be, we were hoping that he would fire at us. Well, I'm a first for Canada.